Hello and welcome to episode 92 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern and pioneer. My name is Stanislav, back in Chicago. And with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stan, you just landed, rushed home, fed the cat, got on the microphone. So if you've been, you, you haven't been paying attention at all, right? This is all, this, you're, you're here for all the news we're here to provide. I haven't played Magic since Friday the 11th, and I like barely read up about any Magic while I was away. I'm like so out of touch. I feel like I'm learning the game all over. What's what's an upkeep? Mm-hmm. No one really knows. We just all, we, we announced it as a phase. Well, big surprise to you. What if I told you that Mill was on top now? What do you think about that? It's the Milliverse. Welcome to the Milliverse. What? what, what? Where did I... Is this like Langoliers? What did I land into? <laughs> also with us, the Godfather, Dave Harberger. Langed and ready to go. Bronson Pinchot was on that in the TV adaptation. Oh, man. Valkyvar Takamus himself. Very good. Yeah. Cousin Laurie. Boy, that show definitely did not age well, <laughs> did it? Okay. Perfect strangers. We'll see you later. TGIF, baby. On this week's episode, it's a celebration of the new. Zendikar Rising is here and already making waves in Modern and Pioneer. So today in the breakdown, we're going to take a look at some challenges that took place over the last weekend. Then we'll head into the dive down to talk about some of the new decks and cards in a little more detail as we take a first look at these new, fresh, exciting, and clean metagames that we get to dive into for the next three months. We might even have what's basically a mini dive on a new terror of the format. Stay tuned. First, it's time for a little housekeeping. Thank you to the newest patron to join the Dive Down Nation, Odins. Not Odin. Odins. We got multiple. Yeah. Thank you so much for your support. No new reviews on Apple Podcasts this week, but if you have something to say about our show, hopefully something nice to say, you can leave us a little review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, wherever you listen to shows. If you'd like to support us here at the Dive Down, separate some of your hard-earned money from yourself, give it to us. You can do that at patreon.com slash the Dive Down. Even a buck a week is super helpful to us. Gets you immediate access to the super secret Slack server. You know, I think the Slack is better than ever right now. We have like weekly, bi-weekly, camera-based uh, Friday night magics that are going on that people are enjoying. Strangely, the results are getting <laughs> published on uh, Goldfish because we're using MTG Melee and apparently they're just pulling them in. I'm waiting until uh, Richard over at Goldfish uh, realizes that this is not a legitimate tournament and, <laughs> and just is like, uh, we're not going to be taking, we're not going to track the dive down tournaments any longer. I don't know what's illegitimate about it. We have some of the best movers and shakers in the modern metagame playing in our FNMs. We got a good TO, Ben, who's organizing the tournaments. Thank you very much, Ben. And occasionally we have Judge Jack. So we actually we even have a judge. So uh, trying to keep it legit. But uh, even more than the Slack, we do have some swag. We have uh, stickers and pins and custom tokens and custom play mats at different tiers. So yeah, if you want to uh, come support us, head over to patreon.com slash the dive down. And if you'd like to support us while playing Magic, please... Check out manatraders.com for all your magic online rental needs. If you use code the dive down as a new subscriber when you check out the dive down, all one word, 
you will get 20% off your first three months of rentals from Manitraders.com. It's the service we use and love and write secret notes to. Manitraders.com, <laughs> thank you very much for your support. <laughs> thank you, gentlemen. Now, with all that out of the way, let's jump over to Shane, who's at the news desk this week. Shane, tell me, what did I miss? Well, I wasn't kidding. <laughs> There's some wild stuff, man. So we'll, uh, we'll start with two of the modern challenges that happened over the weekend, and then we'll head on over into two of the pioneer challenges after that, because there's some interesting stuff in both and Zendikar rising is definitely already making some cool impact. Uh, It's making whole new decks. It's changing existing decks. So let's go over this. So the Saturday modern challenge starts with a banger, the, the enzyme on mill. So as Dave was referencing, Mill is already the new Scourge of Modern, uh, immediately slotting in a full play set of Ruined Crab. So we do have eight crab, but also a full play set of Blood Chief's Thirst. Which one do you think was more important? Probably the crab. I don't know. <laughs> we got to talk about Blood Chief's Thirst, right? Because this is definitely an early miss, I think, on our parts. Can I just say I'm upset? I'm going to be upset about a few things. Yeah, this 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 violates your rule of of cheap. This was a huge mess that we had that I thought about talking about and then was like, nah, it's sorcery speed. It's sorcery exactly. speed. Sorcery you speed. Can't, it, it can't be that good. Well. But it costs one. Yeah, it costs one black mana for a sorcery. It's called Blood Chief's Thirst. It's got kicker, two colorless, and a black. Destroy target creature or planeswalker with converted mana cost two or less. If this spell was kicked, instead to tr- destroy target creature or planeswalker. Guess what? It's pretty good utility. It's a main main board spell that costs one that kills a lot of creatures in modern, and then occasionally snags a red and six. And then other than that, you can use a kill planeswalker if you have to. Pretty good utility, is what I'd say. And it appeared in decks other than Mill. Oh, yeah. Saw it in uh, Mono Black and Pioneer. Um, some other decks we're going to discuss as we go along. But yeah, uh, Blood Chief's Thirst is a card to grab. I mean, like it's just, you know, extra fatal pushes if you want them. It's not, you know, it's not the same, of course, but it's close and close is good when it's single mana removal. And I've heard a lot of rumblings from people on the Slack and on Twitter and stuff that this is not extra fatal pushes in Pioneer. This is better than fatal push in Pioneer. I've heard people claiming Whoa. So let's see. Just because it's hard to enable revolt sometimes. It, yeah, it's hard to enable revolt in Pioneer and the extra planeswalker utility is just worth it. Good point. Good point. Because walkers can take over games in significant ways in Pioneer that they can't always in modern. Yeah. It's still a four mana planeswalker removal spell, basically, but at least it comes stapled to a lightning bolt, essentially, which is nice. It's a little weird for Pioneer to think about this as a walker removal spell since you're there's no Ren and Six. Like, you're never nabbing a two CMC walker. You're always paying four. Uh, Tybalt? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you are always paying four. Well, it sort of strikes the balance between something like a Fatal Push and a Hero's Downfall, right? Where it's like Hero's Downfall is always three, but it always tags. It's always unconditional removal. This is the flexibility of, say, hey, this is like my Sorcery Speed Fatal Push-like spell early. It's my more expensive Hero's Downfall later. And flexibility is more valuable than I give it credit for often. And this might just be the case. We were also called out on Twitter by someone who was talking to the Enzyme, I believe, who said, can't wait for this deck to get some love on uh, on the dive down this week. Here's your love. We're loving it. We're loving it. 
We did a full-blown deck dive on Mill. It was a bonus episode. I think it was our first. That was our first bonus. It's been almost a year since we did that. So I don't know if people have gone through the the uh, the archives for that one. But yes, if you would like to hear what we had to say about Mill a year ago, go check out our first, first bonus episode from September of 2019. It might be from October. Note that this list is not running Maddening Cacophony, which is another new mill spell that many other mill pilots did choose to slot in this weekend, but this uh, this deck did not. Second place, Is It Signet is the best. Pretty straightforward username there. On Naya, Valakit, Titan, Field Stuff. This deck's pretty standard if you can call like a Selesnya Titan standard yet, but it splashes red for Boil in the sideboard because why not well i have a reason why not <laughs> because this deck is running a playset of dryad of the elysian grove sometimes you just gotta blow up some blow up some uh what are they blows up islands blow up your own lands that are also islands maybe maybe you sideboard it out i think that 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 what this says to me is that this deck wants to be able to deal with blue decks but probably uro based piles and so yeah. they're deciding to run it perhaps taking out dryad as part of that plan perhaps doing some other things but yeah this is the return of that interesting green white based titan deck that we've talked about a number of times lately up next third place dr robert spaghetti vomit out a sweater already on gruel ponza straightforward deck list there fourth place metcalf 23 on white taxes okay so a bunch of new cards in here that we talked about on our spoiler episodes. I'm glad that we picked these cards as clicks to pick because this deck's already showing up. Fourth place in a challenge is not too shabby. We have Archon of Emiria as a two of. It's our flying rule of law, and I think more importantly, it makes the non-basic lands enter tapped. Uh, I'm kind of amazed, honestly, that Archon of Emiria is already a main deck choice in a top eight deck in a challenge, but I think there's some utility there in taxes, as we suspected. Skyclave Apparition. As a four of, another one of uh, my slash R picks, it just does work. It exiles opposing permanents and gets rid of them somewhat permanently. You know, that card's not coming back. And and we're going to see that in a bunch of other decks we talk about this week. I'm excited to see that card hanging out. I got to say. Oh, it's it's doing work. That's awesome. I think, I mean, it's easy to compare it to Deputy of Detention, but doesn't require blue. Mm -hmm. There you go. And it's also white mana. And also the card doesn't come back. Come back. That's important yeah. too. Mall of the Skyclaves, my favorite place to shop while in the air, uh, shows up as a one of. It's a card Everett mentioned being interested in last week. You know, th maybe the rate is just too tempting on this, right? Like it's it's what, two and a white? So it's not cheap, but when it comes into play, it has no equip cost if you've got a creature down. And in a deck like this, you're planning on having a creature down. So it gives plus two, plus two, flying and first strike. That doesn't stink. That's that's good value to to slap onto a creature and start getting in over maybe a ground stall or just finish it off the opponent. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, probably a couple of regular targets for this. You know, it's it's nice to have a late game aggressive plan with uh, Stoneforge Mystic, which is what I kind of think. You know, sometimes you get a little bit of aggressive if you have the right color swords, where you get to kind of pass through your opponent's creatures. But flying, flying still one of the best keywords, you know, and so if you could just fly over everybody, get an extra hit in, that's great. Throw it on a batter skull. You know, there's nothing stopping you there. Throw it on a, a Skyclave apparition, turns into a 5-5. Five five. Like, those are pretty good things. Yeah, I mean, even putting it on a, on your Flicker Wisp that already has flying, giving it five power and first strike. And double flying. It flies over the flyers. Exactly. Leaping. 
We call that Stratus flying. Leap actually is an ability. It's a soft ability. So it's one of those great limited abilities. Yeah. It means flying until end of turn. All right. Oh, I was going to say really quick, this, this white taxes deck, Spider Space has been talking about it on Twitter the last couple of days and has a couple of trophies with it as well. So it's it's something that I think is is hanging around a little bit. Next up, Staff Matt 1992 on Gruel Sixth place, Graven Cairns on a interesting Luris Jund build. I think Luris is just in the main deck uh, because it has a lot of permanents that are over to CMC. So it has this wild mix of one to two ofs, like Dark Confidant and Grim Flare. Croxa, Dead Weight, Seal of Fire. So it's like it reads like it would have Traverse in it, but it doesn't. It's like not a Delirium deck besides like sort of Grim Flare and maybe just having a lot of flexibility for Luris targets. Uh, it has two Blood Blood Chiefs Thirst as well. So note it's just going into a Jun style deck that's just like, hey, I want more one CMC interaction. So this is a wild deck. Like, it's it's crazy. And note that there's no Fatal Push in this deck. Uh-huh. So they're straight up running Blood Chief's Thirst over Fatal Push in this deck. Wow, that's a thing. It's pretty interesting. I mean, you got your Dead Weight and your Seal of Fire to go with Luris. I mean, it, very cool. Very cool Jund. Seventh place, SM Deister, uh, Sam Party, a Denver native. Uh, on Teamer, Uro, Field, Pile stuff, it's definitely the kind of deck that really good players like Sam Party are going to play, outplay me 99.9% of the time. Uh, this is the kind of pile that I would mess up with. I'm sure they are playing it quite well. There's not much to talk about here. It's just like Teamer, Uro, good stuff, you know, Field, Field of the Dead, you know, take over the long game. Weirdly not running Omnath. Yet, but we'll talk about that yes. more later. Maybe, maybe Sam just didn't listen to any, you know, preview episodes, even of his own podcast. He was just like, <laughs> I don't care about Zendikar Rising. What do you think is the point of Oboro, Palace in the Clouds? The one up here that you can fetch with like your hour of promise. Well, people tend to run Oboro frequently when they would like to avoid boil for one thing. Um, so that's possibly some anti boil tech uh other than that i'm not so sure yeah because it's that's it's it's a one of and that's your only non-island blue source i think it's probably anti-boil then sure but then you're still not casting uro which has blue blue and its escape cost yeah well let's, let's ask sam he's available on twitter i'm sure he'll answer yeah type it right now stan why don't you just head over to his house or maybe send him something on Postmates in Denver, <laughs> Shane, and with a nice here's note. A, here's, a, here's a fruit bouquet. <laughs> here's cookies on dowels. What do you have? What do you think about this question? Did you mention the one of cleansing wildfire in the side? I mean, I could. That, that's just like a card that's going to be in like, it's in a lot of red sideboards, like a lot of the teamer style decks. They're just like, yeah, I'm going to play this in the sideboard for sure. A one of. Very interesting. I mean, some people I think are more hesitant to test new cards and they're kind of like, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to test it out, see why I like it, and then I'll add more if I want to type thing. JB2002, uh, it's a young person, on Azorius Control featuring Yorian. This build has some interesting inclusions. Brazen Bower, Kitchen Finks, Restoration Angel, Wall of Omens. So this is definitely like a Blink deck, right? But it's not like a Soul Herder style blink deck so it has four spreading seas which is making a little bit of a comeback it's another good blink target for yorian style decks you know it draws a card and it doesn't it's not going to affect your ability to still keep your opponent off mana wow i love that it's playing four celestial colonnade yes it's back what is it 2016 
Yeah. And, and it's interesting that this blue-white deck is so full of creatures. It's got 17 creatures main plus Yorion, but it's still running four Supreme Verdict. So mm-hmm. it's not getting a lot of repeated value off of these creatures unless like you choose not to cast Supreme Verdict for whatever reason. This is just straight-up blue-white control with some blinkiness, which is wonderful. All right. Let's head into Sunday's challenge. Some other interesting decks we have uh, here. First place, Coerts on green-white Selesnia scales. Yes, mm-hmm. I mentioned this is modern, not Pioneer. So what this deck is doing is is kind of what you would expect, right? So it has like Conclave Mentor, Heliod, Ranger Captain of Eos, Scavenging Ooze, Spike Feeder, Walking Ballista, all that kind of stuff. But it also has the Arbor Elf Utopia Sprawl package to get, and get, get some ramp going. And then it has a single copy of Turn Timber Symbiosis just because like you can. like your The opportunity cost is not too bad to run a land like that and if you need it in a in when you have a ton of mana lying around sure go for it type thing but this isn't like revolutionary but it's still pretty wild to see like just a green white scales deck uh just take first place like this main deck oriok champion like really gunning against blitz it's good for devotion too exactly notice we didn't see a single prowess blitz deck in the first top eight whoa (laughs) i wonder what we're in store for on this one didn't even notice that i'm too busy paying attention to the new to think about the old dave okay that's the problem it they didn't really maybe get some new cards we'll see what happens Mm. uh second place danim rebel on azorius spirits what What's okay For uh, Skycleave Apparition, again, making an appearance here. Spirits don't need to fly in order to be good, I guess. Um, yeah, but basically, besides the Skycleave Apparition, it's just essentially an, an old, good Spirits tribal deck doing work. But it does say something about the power of a Skyclave Apparition, perhaps, that it's immediately taking this deck to be able to come to a second-place finish or make people at least be interested enough to play it in a, in a challenge like this. Yeah, I like the inclusion of three main deck giver of runes as well, but we haven't seen spirits in a modern top eight like all year, basically. In a long time, a long time. Worth noting, there's no counterspell trickery in this deck either, so it's not like we decided to run uh, Mana Beak or whatever, or something, some kind of payoff. Yeah, there's, 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 there's no like Pact of Negation or whatever the heck the that spell I never cast, that, that good one from Horizons, that's not Pact of Negation. Force of Negation. Yeah, there's no Force of Negation. Right, it, but it also, because it's not banned, it's not running Coco, so you don't have any like Coco into Spell Queller shenanigans which I think was one of the most powerful things that like spirits decks are capable of doing. Yeah. I mean, Everett last week, we talked a lot about the fact that he thought tribal decks were pretty good right now. And this is just another tribal deck. I mean, spirits in some ways has the best Lords, you know, they don't give evasion, but they do let you do things like double drug skull captain to do a lockout point removal. If people aren't running rest, it's pretty tough to deal with that. And then, you know, you've got Skyclave Apparition, which is a whole new dimension in the deck for dealing with onboard permanence and Shacklegeist even to help you do some kind of opposition-y type things. It's seems possible, you know, it's a tribal deck that flies instead of one that island walks or does whatever we want to say humans does. So. Speaking of humans, it's in both third and fourth place. So third is Geocatore Medio 92 on humans and then x-whale also on humans uh we'll see x-whale's name come up uh in a future list local player will kruger is x-whale oh that's right yeah a lot of look at that more tribal decks just like just like ever wrote it up yeah and you could if you want to think about 
the taxes deck is it's not a tribal deck, but it is a you know an Aether Vile deck uh, in our last top eight. So Aether Vile still doing work. Fifth place, Maxim Maximus D on uh, Jun Shadow featuring Luris with some twists here. So this is sort of like a variant on the aggro shadow builds of the past, but it's basically the deck that Dave was suggesting would be a thing. It's just here. Here it is. We got we have Death Shadow, Monastery Swissbeer, uh combining forces with the new Akoam Hellhound, Akoam, Akoam, and Scourge of the Skyclaves to form our hyper aggressive uh, Voltron creature package. They still need the body though, so there's a couple arms and legs. Uh, a lot of other expected uh, Shadow aggro cards here, like Thoughtsy, Street Wraith, Bolt, Bec- Become Immense, Teamer Battle Rage, Mutagenic Growth, Mistress Bauble. All of our friends are here. And of course, the deck can run Luris, so it does. Uh, why not? Yeah, this is so interesting. First of all, four Teamer Battle Rage. And I really liked Everett's point last week. I did listen to the show about how like Shadow doesn't really need Battle Rage. It's kind of like a win more card. And here we are like going all in on that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in this particular deck, like this is running the old, the old Become Immense into Teamer Battle Rage combo, which is just massive and also the interaction we'll talk about it more later or we can talk about it now but the interaction between team or battle rage and scourge of the skyclaves is actually really interesting i think because if you attack with the scourge of the skyclaves and cast team or battle rage on something else to give it double strike you can really kind of alter the power and toughness of scourge of the skyclaves quite a bit because it hits twice for example if you're at 14 or if your opponent's at 14 and you're at 10 your scourge is a 6-6 six, six. so if you cast team or battle rage on it when you're attacking you hit them the first time and they go to eight and you're still at 10 so then your scourge becomes a 10-10 so you hit them for um you get them for 16 when they were originally a 6-6 six, six going into combat Ooh, that's that's really cool. Yeah. So I think that there's something going on there. I, I will say, yeah, this is kind of the deck that I imagined would be played. Uh, Michael Rapp was streaming with this deck over the weekend with Ari Zax, who's another uh, kind of moto and uh, well-known player. They were playing this deck a good amount. I kind of thought that this deck would end up with step links in it still, but turns out it didn't need it. I think that making the mana a little bit better, allowing it just to focus on Jund turned out to be a good thing for for this deck and so that's that's kind of where we are so seeing the full grip of akum hellhound here is the lesson that like the worst thing about step links was just the fact that it was in white and if it had been in red like this whole time we would have been seeing a lot more step links decks uh i think so let me check one thing i am checking yeah step links is still white dave <laughs> i'm more checking the base power and toughness of akum hound versus Steplink. so i think it's the same yeah that's what i wanted to, to double check there yeah i i think yes <laughs> personally wow. <laughs> wow i mean it's interesting too because remember these style of decks tended to run wild nacatl as well and they're no longer doing that either so pretty interesting to see that move on I do wonder, though, like, why wasn't the Black-White Shadow deck playing Step Links? Like, you can get it with Ranger Captain. You can impact your life total with, like, a bunch of fetches in that deck, too. So my take on that build is that that is the most mid-range of the mid-rangey decks that there are for Shadow. You know, the ones that have counter spells tend to be a little tempo-y. The Jund ones tend to be aggro. This one tends to be aggro. The Mardu and Black-White ones tend to be a little bit more grindy. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think they want an aggressive attacker quite in this vein. 
what they want to do is do some combo-y stuff with Ranger Captain, use that to fetch up Hex Parasite to pump up their guy on command. Could mm-hmm, be wrong, mm-hmm. but in the universe of Shadow, that's kind of where I'm at. Makes sense, Dave. Sixth place, Mick Winsauce on uh, Teamer, Uro, Our, Field, Pile. They are choosing to immediately slot in Omnath, Locus of Creation, and Seagate, Restoration. Uh, we'll talk about Omnath a little bit more later on in the episode. And uh, they also have Cleansing Wildfire and the side. Trader 08111 on Gruel Ponza. Again, stock build. Eighth place, Bench Summer on a more normal Jun Shadow, kind of the usual Shadow and Goyf stuff. But interestingly to me, at least, this deck has two Magmatic Channeler to sort of just be maybe just a decent red beater and provide some card selection when you need it. Uh, I don't know. Two is just an interesting number. I don't. It's just it's just a it's a red card that gets you some some card selection and card draw. I guess like, it's not really draw because you're you have to have a card in hand. Yeah. No. I mean, I think it counts as card draw though. Honestly, it's definitely like trying to get some selection helps you in the late game in a way that some other cards can't unless you can get Luris plus Bobble going. It's just a way to grind forward. Um, the other thing is that you know it. It's a two drop that can be aggressive like Tarmogoyf. And so I think that, you know, in the right situation when you need it to be a four, four. And so I think that's why this deck is only has one scourge is that they decided they wanted to try something that was versatile in the mid and late game instead of just being a card that beats down like scourge does. I, I, I love backing up like a bunch of turn one, turn two hand disruption and removal spells, like whether it's Thoughtseize, maybe even like if it's an early traverse so you can hit your land drops and then casting Channeler and having just like a two mana four four on the spot. Yeah. They're also uh also running a single scourge of the skyclaves. Maybe they're just testing it out. Maybe this wants some spice, an additional element of attack there, perhaps. I, I think it's just because they want one extra Tarmogoyf, but not three, so that they can use their other two drop spots to draw more cards, basically. I, I will say I was not expecting to see Magmatic Channeler end up in this style of deck, really at all, but it makes some sense. You know, you want something that does something later on if it survives. So, yeah. So looking at both of these top 32s, one thing I noticed is that humans is now up there with uh, the Earl piles as one of the most popular decks in the format. It made up 14% of the challenge meta and the Earl piles were 15.6. So it's, it's up there. Like humans did really well this weekend. People are looking at it closely again and, and, and taking it to the tournaments. I mean, just think about how many of these top combined top eight decks had Aether Vial, at least four did. Four in this top eight did, and I don't even remember on the in the other one off the top of my head, but that's that's a lot. Yeah, I mean, Aether Vial is still good. Still good, you guys. What percentage was Ponza? Because I was noticing just a ton of Gruel. There's at least three or four out of this. Yeah, there were th- there were three in the top in the there were three in the two top eights. I don't know what happened in the the rest of the thirty two. It wasn't quite as much though. It wasn't it wasn't as substantial as uh, humans and the oil piles. But guys, prowess nowhere to be seen. Yeah, not popular this weekend. Uh, depends on which tournament you're looking at. Oh, it won the modern championship. Oh, did it? I did not see those results. Which... Well, the, well, but the, the modern championship refers to that that PAX thing that happened. Is that what you're talking about? Uh, I don't know what I'm talking about. I, it's just called Modern Champs and Goldfish. Yeah, that's, for as far as I can tell, that is this PAX online event that Pastimes ran. And weirdly, I can't find any data from Pastimes themselves about this. 
But um, Mickey in the Slack confirmed that some people he knew were playing in that and that this is the event type thing. What's weird about that event is not a single deck in the top eight ran a new card, hmm. as far as I could tell. Okay. Which flavor of prowess? Mono red Obosh. What I think, I'm, I'm curious if those deck lists were had to be locked in before the new format came, came into play, but I'm not sure. I just thought it was really weird that not a single deck was running new cards, but I didn't actually scroll through the whole thing. So maybe something further down did. So this is some interesting podcast radio here. I, so, uh, I don't know. You, you might be right that it's a PAX thing, but I'm looking at it on the Wizards website with Doomwake in 10th place running Mill with four Ruined Crab, four Maddening Cacophony. Yeah, so then, uh, yeah, the deck lists were flexible. People just chose not to run some newer cards and still did well in that tournament. So we're seeing, you know, there's always the the new is always tempting, um, but that doesn't mean that established decks are any worse. So as always, keep your eye on the developing meta, and we'll be here doing that with you. So let's head over into Pioneer, because we spent a good amount of time on Modern. I mean, this episode's going to be a little bit more in the breakdown than typical, I think, because we do have a lot of new stuff to talk about. And that'll just kind of segue into the, the dive down pretty cleanly anyway. So the Saturday Pioneer Challenge. First place, Yashimoro on Selesnia Auras, which incorporates the new Branch Loft Pathway, uh, which is the Celestia pathway. And that's assisting with the allied mana. And we're going to see this trend continue. So where there are allied decks or decks that want access to allied mana, they are immediately using these pathways to success, apparently. Not any in modern. No. I don't think we saw a single pathway in modern. No, we did not. No. So my my thinking is, I think, working out so far, which is the allied decks need these in Pioneer and the modern decks don't. And so we'll we'll see how that plays out over time. I mean, it's just week one. So I think this deck just kind of wants to stick a Glade Cover Scout and ride it to victory. Like, it's not running even, like, that two-mana hexproof creature that I think is typically in, like, a Celestia Auras deck in Pioneer. There's some other creatures in here, like All Seed of Life's Bounty and SRAM, Senior Edificer, and, like, a Singleton Adanto Vanguard. I really thought, like, this deck might want to run more Adanto Vanguards because you can just sort of pay life to keep it uh, from being destroyed. And that's essentially like hexproof in a lot of ways. So for a hexproof style deck, there's not a lot of hexproof creatures, but uh, Yashimoro also, I'll just spoil it, also did fourth place on Sunday's challenge. So clearly they know what they are doing with his deck and it's built in a way that allows them to succeed. Wow. Also, you get to grind with Luris. Don't forget that. Oh yeah. I mean, always play Luris. Uh, second place, Astral Plane on like a Torbrin red build. It's not quite super chonk. It's like mid chonk. There's no Glorybringer in the main. Uh, it has two Shatter Skull Smashing. Say that three times fast. Uh, shows up here as a piece of interaction that can also just be a land if you need it to be. Third place, CWS, uh, Caleb Shearer on the field combo deck that he mains in Pioneer. Uh, he added a few Bala Ged Recovery. That can allow him to return cards from the graveyard to his hand if needed, or just be a tapped green source, I believe. Fourth place, X-Whale. We mentioned them earlier. They're on mono black aggro here. That's it. After playing stock humans, they decided to be real crazy and run stock mono black aggro. No new cards. Fifth place, Killer SUV and a wild one. Four color Uro Landfall Ultimatum. I'm really good at naming decks. Um, this deck feels features five new Pioneer cards. Is this a standard deck? 
it might be close. I mean, this this style of deck, I believe, is taking over standard as well. Because I mean, it has it has Lotus Cobra, Omnath, Locus of Creation, Felidar Retreat, Seagate Restoration, Turn Timber Symbiosis. All of these cards are legal in uh, standard. So what this deck seems to be wanting to do is just ramp and start playing potent threats like Agent of Treachery, Uro, Omnath, and of course, Genesis Ultimatum. And what that card does is let you play any number of permanents from the top five cards of your library, uh, put them into play for the low, low cost of green, green, blue, 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 red, red. So yeah, it's a, it's a ramp deck with four colors and a lot of good payoffs i love that it's got agent of treachery without luca so you're you're just casting it or maybe getting it off of the ultimatum yeah i mean it's got felidar retreat i've seen some sick arena screenshots of people getting just massive armies with tons of counters on them from felidar retreat as well and then also turns out escape to the wilds is a good card which I didn't realize that a ton of people were going to be playing as soon as rotation happened in uh, in standard. And now it looks like it's making a little bit of an impact in Pioneer. More broken cards from Throne of Eldraine. Sixth place, uh, Capricio on four-color Uro Omnath Reclamation. So why not just make Reclamation better? Add a fourth color, add Omnath. And again, we'll talk about Omnath later. So bear with us. Seventh place, uh, Bolovo on Mono Black Aggro, this time featuring three Blood Chiefs Thirst. I believe they also had a full place at a Fatal Push. I was making sure if they were just kind of adding in more removal. Three and three. Three and three. Nice. Eighth place, Mazinda Linda, also on the exact same deck. Three and three. <laughs> three and three. Adds up to six. Yep. Was that Scotty Pippen? Look at this Galdacott also in ninth place in this one. There's a lot of players in this this tournament. Yeah. I mean Mazinda Linda, I see their name pop up a lot. I mean CWS, X Whale, Yashimoro doing knows what they're doing. I mean, there's just there's always names on Magic Online. Uh at some point we're just gonna stop being amazed by seeing them because you know, if you wanna get good at uh the eternal formats, play on Magic Online. I just feel like I'm constantly like, hey, I know that person. I know that name. Yeah. They're famous. I just looked it up. Scotty Pippen was 33 when he played for the Bulls. 33 years of age or the number 33? Both. <laughs> Sunday's challenge. Mogged on Gruel Aggro. Using Crag Crown Pathway. Shows up as a four of to assist in that allied mana as we expected. This deck's pretty aggro, right? Atarka's Command. Even a couple Reckless Bushwhackers. Still has a couple Questing Beast and Glory Bringers to provide some potential finishing power there. But this deck is looking to get damage in quickly and i imagine uh did because they won <laughs> second place uh Vulcanos on jeskai luca not much new going on there third place pioneer master claudio still running five color niv out there but bringing in two omnath locus of creation because why not you can cast it that's a good card i would not be surprised if claudio is going to have more than two in, f- in future builds of this deck but we'll see Fourth place, uh, Yashimaro, as we mentioned on the Selesny Auras deck. Fifth place, Tayobi uh, 440 on Bant Spirits. It's back with four Skyclave Apparition. And a Glasspool Mimic. And a Glasspool Mimic, yeah, Singleton Glasspool Mimic. So what that is, is it's one of the creature lands, so not the spell lands as we've been seeing more of, but it can come in as a tapped blue source or uh, comes in as like a clone effect for two and a blue, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sixth place, Caverna, good game, on Orzov Auras. 
Seventh place, Archgaze on kind of like this Teamer Emerge style deck. It's you know, these types of builds are beyond my comprehension in terms of how they're expected to operate, but there's just a lot of you know a lot of good cards, and I expect that they work pretty well together. Eighth place, Velorge on Mono Black Aggro. This time, returning to the Demonic Embrace and not running any new cards besides that one that we saw uh, as two or three of in a lot of Mono Black Aggro builds for a few weeks, and now uh, that seems to be eschewed for other cards. Stan, the Teamer Emerge deck had two Nimble Obstructionists main. Nope, did not. <laughs> not a card. <laughs> Shane, I see nothing. Doesn't look like anything to me. I just see a blank line. Stan, Stan just has a quizzical, inquisitive look. Yeah, I, I have no reaction. Cool. <laughs> cool deck. I, I like Nimble Obstructionists sometimes. Uh, some stuff of note in Pioneer uh, that is somewhat jaw-dropping. Omnath is in already... 19 of the 64 decks of the two Pioneer Challenges. That's nearly 30%. Ah! (laughs) It's in a mix of the four-color Ultimatum decks, the five-color Nimizit decks, and now four-color Reclamation-style decks. Can I ask a question of you both? Yeah. How bad do you feel about... Not bad. I I feel kind of bad about totally missing on Omnath until... Everett was like, hey, guys, this card is really good. Well, it's it exhibits for me, at least like a hole in my observation of magic altogether, which is like if a if it's a deck that I never play and just like hope to dodge, like it's just like not even in, in my like peripheral vision. And that's a pretty big weakness, right? Where it's like, yeah, I know that there's there's three and four color reclamation decks. I know there's five color Niv-Mizzet decks. But this is clearly just like a big, crazy you know, ADH card. And that's a miss because it's only four mana. It's not that bad. I don't think we missed it at all. If it, first we got it on episode two, we would have hit it with or without Everett, especially if I was there both weeks in a row. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, well, I mean, we, we found out last week that Ever and I have the same opinion on a lot of mythics from Zendikar Rising. So on everything, a lot of commons too. similar skill levels. <laughs> I just similar don't play deck building ability. Similar good looks. Similar dog. Similar uh, hairstyles and volume. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I wish. Taking a shot at sh- at a stand. I, I 10 wish. Minutes. You see my hair. It's not It's not that voluminous. Everett still has youth on his side. I'm an old married man now. Mm. Congratulations, by the way, Stan. Oh, thanks. Uh, here's a funny stat, though. Uro was in 24 of the top 64 decks. 37.5%. Bodes well. These green mythics, just like they're all busted in Pioneer. <laughs> if, if they generate value and they cost like four or less mana, I don't think even four mana is, is the threshold anymore. Like all these busted green mythics, they're going to lead to shakeups in the format. And it's going to be Oath of Nissa again. It's interesting to see this though, where it's kind of like, it feels a lot more like Pioneer is, this is the type of stuff that makes me feel like Pioneer is much closer to standard than it is to modern. Yes. Which is kind of interesting. I, I don't know if that's totally true, It's, but I definitely don't feel like it's a midpoint between the two as far as style of play goes. It's like, yeah, it's definitely skewing more like, not even mid-range, like heavy mid-range control value games. Like how who can who's going to grind and create the most value over the course of a game? Versus who's going to like burn you out the fastest or like beat you down the fastest. I mean, Gruel aggro did win, right? But I think we're, if we're seeing 37.5 and 30% of decks running four mana spells, 
that are typically in more controlling four color shells, then that's just, that's, that's a different kind of deck. Yeah. Interesting metagame though. First week out. Yeah. I mean, I'm interested. There's a lot of new cards seeing play. I think it adds value. I'm like, I am liking seeing, uh, an allied two allied decks show up and do really well. We have a, you know, Selesnya deck and a gruel deck. Um, able to to get in there and and win some tournaments so i think that does say that the pathways are proving successful in pioneer which is great totally and and i think that signals to me that once we get the rest of the cycle of pathways in the next set pioneer will continue to be reinvigorated with like a lot of decks that were kind of teetering on the verge that just needed better mana yeah what did what are we missing in the allied we're missing azorius and rakdos i think rakdos yes so that'll be a nice addition to, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if we had seen like Azorius Spirits in one of these top eights, if we had the Azorius uh, pathway. Do we have Demir? Yes. All right, we have Demir, everyone. Okay, that's check, Demir, check. <laughs> and it is Demir. So yeah, that's that's our first, the first four weekend challenges of the, the new meta. And Stan, you have something to say. Say it. I, so, I mean, I haven't talked about magic in over a week. I'm really excited. And I just want to jump back to modern really quick. I guess we can do that. Next to like all the tribal decks, was Ponza a strong meta choice because people are playing like all these new types of lands and they're playing all these like multicolor value piles that blood moon effects are are more powerful and and even like land destruction effects are more powerful. Are are blood moon decks maybe good right now? I know you really want them to be. You, you can validate you can validate your 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 choice of being a, a gruel mage any day, Stan. I don't really know. Like what what makes what makes gruel good? is what the ability to slow down aggro decks and interact with mana on like the the ramp rampy style decks or what uh, and you can kill aether vile main deck without yes because you're running pillage which is not bad to be able to do that on turn two so yeah you're messing with people's acceleration it's a good mid-range choice um you can kill things like noble hierarch really easily and you're ramping out your own big threats almost at the same time i mean it seems like it's pretty good in that environment not so sure about Blood Moon. Depends on which deck you're running up against. Blood Moon, pretty good against humans. Not that good against uh, against Azorius Spirits, probably. But I mean, those those three Gruul aggro decks we saw um, in the top eights were the only uh, Gruul aggro decks that appeared, I believe. So, I mean, excuse me, not Gruul aggro, the, the Gruul Ponza decks. So, yeah. I mean, they, they performed well, or they were, but it's not like there was like, you know, 15 of them in ninth to 32nd place or anything. Okay. I'm keeping an eye out. Keep an eye out, man. I I mean, that's why we're here. That's what, that's what we do. We keep an eye out. So, and one other thing I want to, I want, I didn't want to interrupt your flow, but one last observation about modern. I wonder if mall of the skyclaves for like some of the reasons that Dave listed about having it like be a nice late game finisher for your Stoneforge mystic, like whether it becomes a new staple Stoneforge include just because like eventually people can answer batter skull and like sometimes whatever sword you happen to have like isn't going to do enough especially if you're facing down a bunch of removal and then like you start casting these stone forges and you have nothing to target with them at least this way like now you have this nice late game solution to target to just like close it out yeah i mean it's i think it is gonna be in mono white versions or in many versions i think it'll be a, a good one Right, like because it has that text that says attach it to target creature you control when it comes into play, like Embercleave does. I think that those are you know 
that's a really powerful line of text and that's a good way to get some evasion and it's it's a good way to go all right good good look at the first weekend of tournaments i'm curious to see how the format continues to develop with the new zendikar rising cards so you know stick with us you, you have in the past and you will in the future thanks for doing that uh let's let's head out of this segment we'll go into the dive down so stay with us So I'm in the desert. I barely have any service, but <laughs> really off the grid. <laughs> I barely have any service. You're such a millennial. It's not Jesus. even 5G. Not even 5G. I can't stream my podcast from the desert. The, the national parks don't have Wi-Fi. So I keep getting these push notifications from Twitter, though. That's like modern, no land, Belcher decks, new tier zero, gonna get banned. Look out. It's the menace. So I'm expecting the worst when I come back. Uh, fortunately, I hear that Dave has been testing this stuff out. So Dave, tell me, is is the end of the world as we know it here? Or do you feel fine? I feel great. I will say, I didn't play this deck. I watched some other people play this deck. I do think we have to start here, though, because I think that this was a little bit of the story of the weekend. And, and to be clear, we're going to talk about a number of decks uh, in this second half, just kind of new things that we saw, what's going on, stuff like that. So we're going to start with this place that Stan mentioned. And to be honest, I'm a little annoyed that I didn't bring this up last week because there's definitely potential in the new mechanic of double modal facey spacey cards to have a deck that has no lands in it. And it turns out that the deck that took advantage of this right away is a deck that uses legacy fringe card fringe deck goblin char belcher you know what's funny is i've i've heard of belcher decks i conceptually thought i understood what they were trying to do i really didn't like this card was essentially like if i had opened it in a fresh pack (laughs) no idea what this card does i i've only ever heard of belcher in passing never gave it the time of day to even google it well now's now's the time because people are curious what we think about it I think people were a little bit more scared about it earlier this week. Obviously, it didn't really seem to show up in any of the challenges that Shane did evaluations for earlier today. But it's an annoying deck because it is a deck that runs no lands and can win on turn one, I think. But it can definitely win on turn two and can definitely win on turn three. It can do all kinds of stuff. Yeah, this deck appeared in 24th place by another Magic Online grinder, Sebastian Stuckel. Okay, so if you're not familiar, let's talk about the card itself that this deck is built around. So Goblin Char Belcher is a card that is a 4CMC artifact, and it appeared in Mirrodin, I believe. Can someone check that out for me? Because I'm looking at an Eternal Masters version of it. Okay, so it was in Mirrodin. They want to get that fr- that fresh card art for you, Dave. Hey, you know, I like the mana symbol. Or not mana symbol, I like the set symbol. So it's a 4CMC artifact, like I mentioned. It is a mono artifact, if anybody remembers what that does. I'm kidding. It's got an activated ability that is three and tap, and it says, reveal cards from the top of your library until you reveal a land card. Ding. Goblin Char Belcher deals damage equal to the number of non-land cards revealed this way to target creature or player. If the revealed card was a mountain, Goblin Char Belcher deals double that damage instead. Put the revealed cards on the bottom of your library in any order. 
I don't think you care about anything after the, the first two sentences. <laughs> you do not. I will say, I think some of the earlier versions of this deck, the non-modern versions, the legacy versions of it, play like one mountain or something like that to be able to do double damage to somebody. I don't know. So I think that that comes, has come up in the past. But the point with this deck is, if you are playing a deck that has no lands in it because your deck is only double face card lands with spells on the front of them, then you just deal your whole deck and damage to your opponent when you can play Goblin Charbelcher and activate it. There you go. That's the deck. That's it. So when you deck yourself, is that when Charge Belcher checks how many cards you've revealed? Yes. But keep in mind, you don't deck yourself. You put the reveal cards on the bottom of your library in any order. So even if this were a fizzle for some reason, you would not die to decking. The cards just go back. Mm -hmm. So here's how the deck is built. Because obviously it's not that simple. It's built around gruel colors. It plays all the ETB lands, like we said, all the double face lands. And the first part of the plan is we're going to do things really fast. And so what do you want to do when you're playing a broken combo deck and you want to go really fast? Play broken fast mana spell cards. Right. So you play Rituals. You play Simeon Spirit Guide. You play Vessel of Volatility, which isn't broken, but it's another ritual that you can do. You have Mana Morphos because it fixes your mana, gives you a card, lets you keep going. And finally, you play Iron Crag Feet from Throne of Eldraine which is the first time I think we've seen this card in in a uh, kind of broken-ish deck. It costs one RRR to add seven red mana to your mana pool, but you only get to cast one more spell this turn. Conveniently, Charbelcher costs four, and the activated ability is three. So an Iron Crag feat into a Charbelcher to cast and activate it is perfect. Yep. I, I, I love that. When I saw that, I was like, oh, just chef's kiss. Yeah, you're like, thanks, guys. You you didn't think about Goblin Charbelcher when you made Iron Crag feet? Come on. <laughs> Come on. But I mean, it, it is interesting that you can naturally get a hand in this deck where you just cast Charbelcher on like turn three. Like you ramp into it with a bunch of Simeon Spirit Guides and Rituals, cast it, Iron Crag, or Iron Crag feet, cast it, and activate it. And that's just game. That's like the natural plan for this, this deck. So... Like any combo deck, like that's the literal plan A, but that's the part that's really super high variance, right? Not going to happen that much. You got to put 60 cards in your deck. Clearly, this isn't 60 cards. So what do you do to increase the consistency and power of a deck that's like this that has no lands in it? Well, the first thing I think we need to talk about is a really weird card that found a home in this deck from Mortingtide called Recross the Paths. Y'all seen this card before? I see Stan's face is like he's just seeing some stuff for the first time in his in his life. Is that true? Yeah. Me too, before, before I saw this. I never saw this before I saw this deck list either. But this is clearly a card I feel like that someone has been keeping in mind for a long time that they're like, we can break something with this card someday. And here's what it does. It's two colorless and a green. It's a sorcery. And here's what Recross the Path says. Reveal cards from the top of your library until you reveal a land card. Okay, you're not going to reveal one of those. Put that card onto the battlefield and put the rest on the bottom of your library in any order. Clash with an opponent. If you win, return Recross the Paths to its owner's hand. Each clashing player reveals the top card of the library, then puts the card on top of the bottom. A player wins if that card is a higher converted mana cost. So clearly, it's the clash ability that really makes this card happen. (laughs) Yeah, you got to clash. 
it's only those first couple of sentences that matter. Because what happens is when you cast Recross the Paths in a deck that has no lands in it, you get to pick up your entire deck and just put it in whatever order you want and then put it back down. And that is a stand as a A plus reaction shot right now on camera that I wish everybody could see. <laughs> that is what the the deck does, Stan. Thoughts as you're being this is being revealed to you after 10 days in the desert? Um what happened to my modern? Um is this a budget deck because it has no real lands? No, because it has a whole bunch of mythics from the new set that are actually pretty expensive. Oh, okay. But I actually haven't have checked the price. So anyway, have you ever heard of a card called Doomsday? Because that's essentially what this does. Doomsday was in Weatherlight. It costs black, black, black. Oh yeah, Weatherlight. I was I always love playing my Weatherlight cards. Man, I opened a lot of Weatherlight. Uh, search your library and graveyard for five cards and exile the rest. Put the chosen cards on top of your library in any order. Lose half your life. Round it up. I don't know a ton about Legacy or Vintage, but this is a card that people use in those formats sometimes to set up game ending combos to do other abusive things it was banned at one point in time i don't remember exactly when but the net is that recross the paths is doomsday in this deck except for you don't lose all your cards or lose any life you just get to stack your whole deck in whatever order you want so you get to set up your next ideal hand of seven cards you can set up your next two hands of seven cards that is sort of a wild thing to think about when Paper Magic comes back, is that someone could cast this and then spend 10 minutes stacking their whole deck, which that's a whole other issue that we could talk about later. Yeah. But the fact is, this is the deck's plan B, quote unquote, to be able to increase the consistency of the deck when you don't get a natural belcher draw. You move into one. This, but that's not it. But Stan, what do you have to say? Well, it, that kind of just reminds me of Gifts and Given, where it's just like, this is the way the deck gets its inevitability. Absolutely true. And there's a couple other pieces to make that inevitability even more inevitable. Because when you stack your deck, the first thing that you generally do with the deck is plan to put a card called Reforge the Soul on top of your library, which is a miracle card from Avacyn Restored. The miracle cost is one and a red, and it is Wheel of Fortune. So basically what happens is you ramp out into Recross the Paths early. Get yourself in a position where the next turn when you draw, you will draw Reforge the Soul, cast Reforge the Soul, draw your ideal seven. Generally, that ideal seven involves a number of Simeon Spirit Guides, a number of Rituals, and a Belcher, and maybe an Iron Crag feat to set yourself up to be able to, on that turn, go off because you have a handful of cards. Now, there's a whole lot more to that. And, you know, other people's decks, you know, I haven't played this deck, like I said. I watched Squatch Chief. Corey Crowfoot play this uh, through uh, on YouTube to kind of learn what was going on here. And it's sort of similar to, to Storm in that way because you want to make sure that you stack the right seven. And Sodak also ran this deck and said that he really liked the deck. He ran two Reforge. So you can set yourself up for when you, you know, you can go from a seven into setting yourself up for another seven if you feel like there's some reason that you have to do that on, the, on subsequent turns. Because um, Miracle doesn't work twice yada 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 but you know you can be able to get into some wild combinations like that stacking two full cards of hands for some reason there you go stan what do you think about this whole thing hmm. i want to play it you want to play it that's where you're at wow yeah i mean <laughs> this just looks insane i don't think i've ever played a deck like this and i'm i'm really curious 
and interested. I mean, yeah, it's interesting. I like I said, I watched Corey play this deck. I've watched four matches of the league that he posted, and it, it will have some other commentary from from what he said. But like, it is, it's like not magic. Like it's sort of magic, but it's sort of not magic. It's Yu Gi Oh. Yeah, I don't maybe. No, but th- this is this is actually Yu Gi Oh, where it's just like chips passing in the night times a million where it's like can i get my infinite combo yeah. off do i get do i get my cards together yeah mm-hmm. it's another combo deck yeah i mean it's a for real combo deck and like turns out you know the lands you sort of literally don't care what they do but there's a lot of good options here for you to be able to play Balagad sanctuary which is the regrowth that's with a land you you might use that sometimes to turn timber symbiosis you can't use that for everything, anything, because you really don't have any creatures in your deck. You'll never cast it. It's really just about coming into play. Spike Field Hazard, maybe use the Gut Shot to get rid of an Uro or something that's problematic out of an opponent. Valakut Awakening is the one that's the Wind of Change kind of effect or Windfall sort of effect that lets you redraw cards. That's pretty good for you to be able to occasionally, when you're having a sort of bad draw, you cash in your hand and draw new stuff. Shatter Skull Smashing. I don't think you're going to do this to to wrath a bunch of creatures or anything like that. You know, Sodex build ran Seagate Restoration. You're not casting Seagate Restoration in this. It's just to have an untapped, another land that's able to come in untapped. Yeah, what is that? Four blue, blue, blue? Yeah, there's no reason to do it. It's just just a land. Yeah. And it's it's basically a colorless land in this deck. Yeah, a colorless that comes into play untapped, but is not a land. And I got to say, when people start doing that and think that's the right choice, that's where I feel like your alarm bells should start to be going off in your brain with this deck. I mean, that's like a, that's sort of like a telltale sign of like stupid stuff that's potentially more powerful than wizards anticipated is like when you run cards you can't even cast because of like other aspects of the card itself and that's like danger zone territory right like that's kind of this it's it's not quite but it's it reminds me of something like the like living end decks right where like they just want you just want cards that can cycle and you're not ever planning on really casting those cards most of the time or that have cascade or something like that or mm-hmm. Yeah, but like the, the creatures aren't, aren't things you're really planning on actually getting out of your deck. You just want the cycling ability to get them in the yard. So, I mean, looking at this deck and talking about it reminds me of like the first time we talked about Neoform. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, Neoform is still around because super powerful, but it's just as inconsistent. Yeah, and it's worth noting that Squat Chief even said, you know, on September 17th that he played seven leagues with the deck and said, after playing Seven Leagues of Belcher today, the deck feels like a toned-down Neoform in the style of Doomsday. It is a very beatable deck. Mm-hmm. It's one of the funnest decks I've played in a while, so it's definitely worth playing. You get to make Doomsday piles with the top 11 cards matter. It is hard, but super fun, but can be hated out. So I think it's interesting and probably ultimately good that that's true, that it can be hated out. But people are going to be so annoyed playing against this deck, and in paper, it's going to be absurd to watch people stack their entire deck or we use clock time stacking yeah. their entire deck. That's not a thing that's going to be able to happen. That's just not a thing. I don't think even, even setting up like seven cards or 14 cards for inexperienced players or something like that. Like it's not quite a gifts pile. You know what I mean? This is, this is a lot of sequencing and thinking. Right. And that's why I don't think inexperienced players are going to pick this up. Yeah, I will say I forgot to talk about the last card that's in the deck, which is for Veil of Summer Main. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just for extra trolley ability. But I mean, it's a great protection card. Like that's 
that's what it is. Like you, you can cast it against a whole bunch of the decks. You can make a refer to the soul draw that has a number of, of, uh, veils that you need to be able to protect your permanence. Occasionally you draw it on your, on your initial draw and you protect yourself from a thought seize early. Like there's a lot of stuff going on there. It's a deck that can cast it offensively before you go off. You can cast a veil of summer and make your opponent counter it and then see what else they have in their hand. So, yeah, it's wild. So I, I think that this deck can have a hard time against counters and thought sees. Maybe it seemed pretty resilient when I was watching it, but clearly, like it didn't dominate the it didn't dominate the challenges this weekend. I do think it's the type of deck that players will start to get into and start to make better and better and better if there are ways to iterate on it. For example, the sideboard plan on this deck is to pull in. If someone has artifact hate or has um, the ability to protect themselves from direct damage, the sideboard plan is to pull in Balustrade, Spy, Collected Company, and Thassa's Oracle and set up a turn where you reforge into Coco or something and then cast Balustrade, Spy, and Thassa off of Coco. And then you mill your entire deck with Balustrade, Spy because you don't have any. Uh, you don't have any lands in your deck. Your entire deck goes away, and then you win off of the Thassa's Oracle trigger. So, realistically, you know, I I think that part of what worries me about this deck is not necessarily the form it's in right now, but the fact that I think it will continue to exist into the future and continue to get better and better and better over time. And so, you know, the double face card's super cool, but I feel like this is one of those things where there's like a unanticipated slash anticipated outcome of a complete new mechanic just popping up in spades i mean if belcher has to go i don't think anyone's going to shed a tear it's not like that was a particularly beloved modern card and i suspect that's like the only card that might get punished if this deck gets out of hand kind of like kci right yeah i think it's probably recross the paths is the card that i would be looking at because if you can I mean, we're probably getting way ahead of ourselves, but it feels like that's the card that leads to the most time wasted, mm. the most, you know, deterministic outcomes of everything. Um, so I can't guarantee that's gonna something's gonna happen, but I really feel like they're not gonna let a card that makes someone be able to stack their entire deck in a paper tournament last. Yeah. Not to hop right to bannings, because clearly it it hasn't done that great. And if people think it's basically like Neoform. Like, what is that, right? You know, I mean, people have... Some people call for bannings of, like, Allosaurus Rider just because the deck is annoying, but it's it's never popping up in a way that is really, really scary. Yeah. Not recently, yeah. anyway. And maybe it's okay for Modern to have, like, one or two decks like this that are, like, very fragile glass cannons. Yeah, I mean, Grizzlebrand has been around forever, too. But I will say, really quick, after watching on Leagues, if you are playing against this deck... Let me give you a couple of thoughts. Uh, you cannot get them with Blood Moon, even though all of their decks are, all of their lands are non-basic lands because they run Manamorphose and they also need to, um, they run Blood Moon out of the sideboard as well. So it's not really effective against them. Point removal is way better. Like Field of Ruin is really good. Pillage is pretty good because he gets Belcher or a land. So you get to do that kind of stuff. So I don't think you can really run Blood Moon against them and think you're going to get them. Just something to think about because it seemed like the first thing I thought of was, well, I'll just make all their lands mountains. It's not good enough. 
Um, artifact destruction is not like super great, but they have lots of games where they can't belcher and activate on the same term. So it's, it's pretty good, you know, especially instant, I mean, not instant speed, but like, um, you might get a window to do it, but I don't think it's the end all as much as something like pithing needle can be the end all instead where, you know, if you have pithing needle in your sideboard, it might be a good thing to bring in. This is definitely a deck where you want to like take away cards out of their hands with thought seizes that you have in the board or duresses or any of that kind of stuff. The, the worst matchup that it probably has is probably Karn the great creator decks because Karn the great creator just makes Belcher not work. Yeah. And so that's part of the reason that they have the sideboard out, whether it's what Sodak was running, where he was running Empty the Warrens, or what Corey was running, which was that Balustrade spy plan. But keep in mind, you know, Karn gets to stop them and also do other stuff at the same time. And then decks that have a combo of counters and discard, like Shadow or something like that, probably helps a little bit. But um, I think that mostly comes down to how well you pull when you thought sees them. So if you run into this, the cues. My first couple of takes about how to play against it. <sighs> this is a deck. <laughs> yeah. Shane, what will it take to get you to to submit the 75? No, I, w- I, would, I would try this deck. But here, I mean, I guess the primary thing for me is like, this is kind of like a decisions probably don't matter that much style deck. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's sort of just you want to, you want to, to, to hopefully have some protection if you run into interaction and piece together the right opening hands. I think that, it's a, again like every combo deck like we see every time it's like you really get the new you get the extra percentage points by knowing how to do things like uh put together your recross the paths in the correct way and actually play for like the the long game and work to a, a winning scenario that's not just having the perfect opening seven type thing but yeah i, I don't know if it's the kind of deck that i feel is worth learning that for me like i'd rather just sort of like get better at a different deck <laughs> I mean, I really think that this is going to get banned away just from the play patterns. So that's another reason that I'm not personally interested in in learning much about it. But Sands into it. He's going to pilot it. Yeah, maybe. Maybe not. All right. So that's the end of our first deck. The potentially bannable Belcher of modern 2020. I, I have no decks to contribute, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. We know. It's all you guys. What I wanted to talk about next. Thanks, Dave for that I think that was like the the one deck that we should have spent the most time on and I think the rest of the ones will sort of be cursory explorations into changes that may or may not stick and I think one of the ones that is interesting is this Jeskai control deck that uh, of course friend of the show aspiring spike he posted a list that he had been doing quite well with he he stated that he went 21 and 6 over the last three days that's a 78% win rate if you're doing some math uh, with a 75. So four, four ones, a five Oh, and a single O two drop cleansing wildfire has felt great every time I've drawn it and feels like exactly what Jeskai needed to make a comeback. Very powerful with flagstones, meaning flagstones of Trakar and uh, Teferi three and it's solid disruption that cantrips. So what this essentially is, is Jeskai control making it what appears to be like a potentially legitimate comeback. No, it's not an SCG open top eight, but perhaps Cleansing Wildfire, along with uh, Shark Typhoon, of course, were the missing pieces that the deck needed to make a comeback into the modern conversation. Stan, tell me about Flagstones of Tracar. Tracar? Tracar? It's, it's, a, it's a land that I think is always sort of in the periphery of modern conversation, but this deck is going to focus on it in a more substantial way. Yeah, so Flagstones, legendary land from Time Spiral. You know, last week it was like a $3 card. Now it's like a $20 card. 
So it's one of those. Legendary land, it taps for white. Or when flagstone is put into a graveyard from the battlefield, you may search your library for a planes card. So not a, just a basic planes, but any planes card. Put on the battlefield tapped and shuffle your library. So the combo with Cleansing Wildfire is you get two lands off of it. Yeah. Real quick note, if you get a pain land, not a pain land, if you get a shock land with that, even if you pay two life, it does not come into play untapped. Something to keep in mind. <laughs> and and what's neat to me is that once upon a time, Jeskai Control in its heyday played Spreading Seas. And, uh, you know, a couple episodes ago, I was kind of talking about how like Cleansing Wildfire and that black one seemed like the conclusion or new additions in that Spreading Seas cycle, so to speak. And I kind of love this like trend of like an upgraded color shifted spreading seas effect coming back into the deck where it used to like do a lot of work. And now apparently it's just as good, if not better than it was before. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's interesting for sure. The the other thing that's really good about this is that I think that this has a more proactive plan with the land disruption than cleansing than uh, spreading seas really ever did, where if you play against a deck that has islands in it already or is okay with blue mana when you have Spreading Seas, you feel pretty bad when you cast it. Still, you still get the card off of it. You cycle it for two, that's fine, but it's a little bit of a waste of time. With this deck, you have a chance to use it either, you know, you have a proactive plan that is pretty good for you with it because of Flagstones. So if you are playing in a matchup where Cleansing Wildfire is good against them, you save it, you just let Flagstones or Trocare be a planes, basically, and you hit their Ink Moth Nexus or their, you know, whatever their their land path is, their Tron land, et cetera, et cetera. If you don't, then you can target uh, your Flagstones or Trocare with your Cleansing Wildfire, and you can ramp. And then you're ramping into an early Cryptic Command or Jace the Mind Sculptor or Teferi 5. And that's not a bad thing to have as like a, a fringe benefit in this deck that has some pretty mana-hungry cards. So in a way, you know, Cleansing Wildfire really is like a draw two in some ways because you get the land back, you get an extra land, and then you get to draw a card as well. And so you get to just kind of keep moving on. Yeah. The other thing is that, you know, because this deck is running Teferi 3 in it you get to cast it at instant speed so you can hold it up hold up your counter magic uh, or early interaction yeah. in one form or another and then at the end of their turn hit one of their lands hit your flagstones and kind of move on and cast teferi a whole turn early or, or something like that yeah i mean the the draw the card draw a card text is as usual extremely important here right like this is just a card that cycles and you can cycle it for value in a lot of ways yeah so why not do it sometimes? Yeah. I mean, the rest of this deck is basically what you would expect, right? It's paths, a whole bunch of bolts, lightning helix, uh, remand, which is pretty interesting to, to see come back. It's definitely a card that I played with a long time ago in Jeskai style, style decks. Um, a lot of people think that it's much better in decks that have a proactive plan where you're just time walking them and drawing a card and like, that's fine. You know, it's got your snap. It's got your Jace, the mind sculptor. It's got... To Fairy Three, to Fairy Five, and Shark Typhoon. Yeah, sharks and and Snapcaster appear to be like your primary win con. Yeah, so you know you can ride Jace or To Fairy to victory, but that's the long game. You know what's interesting about Remand? I was really curious about the full playset, and like I've said before, that Remand is like primarily like what I think is for combo style decks. What Spike was saying on stream today, actually, he was saying that it's it's he thinks it's good right now because it's good against Uro. 
and good with Teferi 3. And so he's like, for the first time in a long time, I think Reman's really good. And so we'll see how long that window lasts, if uh, if you agree with that or not, by the way. I don't know. It's not my. It's not. It's not a spell that I'm really good at evaluating. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's always right on the edge of being great, right? Because because it draws a card. I mean, that's that's really the the thing that matters there. I think, and so it's it's all meta dependent. You know, I played this deck. I didn't do great with it because I just picked it up. Just got control for the first time in a while, and it's not an easy deck to play. I think it's really worth mentioning that you know. It doesn't feel different from like what Jeskai Control feels like. And maybe people don't know, but Jeskai was my first modern deck that I ever got way back in 2013. You know, I bought, I decided to move into it when it won uh, the World Championships. I bought my Scalding Tarns for the crazy price of $40 a piece at the time, which was like insane. I love Jeskai. You know, I want to snap bolts bolt snap bolt. I want to cast Path to Exile. Like these are all cards that I like to play way back in the day as well when I played Counterspell and Lightning Bolt and Sarah Angel. But um, I don't think that this deck changes. I don't think that this particular piece of tech changes what this deck is. And so if you are someone who wants to play control, blue-white base control, and wants to play a Bolt deck along with that, I think it's worth testing out. But if you're someone who shouldn't be playing this kind of thing, this isn't a reason to pick it up. Like, I don't think it changes the deck in a way that's substantive enough that like a whole bunch of people should go out and pick up Jeskai right now. Right, right. Because I, I think like the question you're you're sort of asking is whether or not Cleansing Wildfire is better than either Uro or Stoneforge Mystic. And maybe we'll eventually find that it is, but I don't think that's there's evidence to support that just yet. Like, I think it's a plan, a, a reasonably proactive plan, but it's not necessarily like the best control deck all of a sudden. Yeah, and I also think that even outside of that, it's not a reason for more people to start playing control in in and of itself. It's not I think it's good. You can do some some really smart plays with this. It felt pretty seamless. There's a lot a lot of targets out there for cleansing wildfire. That's part of the reason I think we're all pretty sure it's going to be a real and good card. But um this doesn't make me want to suddenly become a Jeskai player and be like I just have to do it forever cuz I I don't think this changes it enough to make that happen. I mean, it's not like Shane is suddenly going to be like, "Yeah, I want to cast Cryptic Command and and Shark Typhoon." That's just yeah. It's not it's not changing the way the deck actually plays. Uh, and like and like like you know, if I was going to do Jeskai, I'd be doing like Jeskai Stoneforge or something like that. Where like it's probably not as good as other Stoneforge based builds, but that was a fun way to play Stoneforge for me in like the brief window that I was doing that. Yeah, I will say this does improve its matchup, Jeskai's matchup against game one against land-based decks. So like Tron was always a deck that was pretty hard to play against when you were on Jeskai if you don't draw enough Path Exiles or you can't counter their Karn or things like that. And so being able to attack their lands, that's helpful. Yeah, the cool thing here is that it can also destroy a basic forest that's carrying a Utopia Sprawl. Because it's just destroy target land. So it's a nice way to slow down the Ponza decks as well, which we've observed are tier zero right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, so it's something that you could definitely kind of zero in. So there's lots of targets for it. And this helps Jeskai get better in those matchups, but it's still the same deck. It's still like in a metagame that has a lot of creatures, your deck full of bolts and paths is pretty good. And then you use your counter spells and your big cards to kind of win from there. 
it's still similar to, to what it is already. Shark Typhoon is another card that makes that plan a lot better, but it doesn't change what that plan is doing. It's not like this is uh, has some kind of combo finish that we've grafted into it that you control and then win with a combo because the deck's just not that proactive. It's not even running a Celestial Colonnade to kind of help with the beats or something like that, which I don't think is the right decision, but it would still make the plan, the deck, a little bit more proactive if you had that. I think we spent a whole lot of time not talking about Mill. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, you want to talk about Mill? Because there's not too much to talk about, right? It's just like it's better. It's better than it was. It has, you know, the, the rule of eight is is proving itself true. People are also very into it. Like I was watching Spike today in the background. I think he saw, I saw him face it three times, like twice in a row. Like he went, it was a, his second loss. So he went 0-2, he dropped, and then immediately started a new league, and it was Mill right away. Um he did beat it that time. He beat, he beat the the unbeatable mill mill scourge of the format. But yeah, I mean, just having the extra redundancy, having the ability to run the new big mill spell, cacophony. Yeah, cacophony, maddening cacophony, which is a spell that it's not necessarily. I don't think people are sold on it either way. If it's an in or out of the deck, but it's a it's a powerful. It's a big number attached to the you know, to the mill. Here's what this mill moment reminds me of and and i should add i was also getting push notifications in the desert about mill once upon a time ponza was a meme and then clothes got printed and suddenly like that was enough value to make that a competitive deck and whether or not that's the case for mill remains to be seen but maybe that's just what's happening is like thanks to the rule of eight thanks to this cacophony card thanks to this new potentially better fatal push like mill has all these additional tools in its control package and in its main like burn plan to potentially like be consistent and resilient enough that it can perhaps like finally hang with the big kids and that'd be great if true yeah i think one thing that i've been seeing uh local mill expert craig mentioned in our slack is that mill has had problems with resolved planeswalkers and so what a card like Blood Chief's Thirst showing up in addition to Fatal Push is, like Dave was saying, it gives it that option, right? Where it's like, hey, it can stop aggressive decks, which Mill wants to be doing because it needs some time to mill out the opponent typically. But it also deals with Resolve Planeswalkers you know, when you have four mana on the board. And by the time that you have a walker that you're really frustrated with, you probably have access to the mana to cast the kicked Blood Chief's Thirst. And so it gives it... The optionality without having to run something like Hero's Downfall, which is an expensive card to main deck. So this is a cheap card and an expensive card when it needs to be. Yeah, I was going so to say it makes sense it's slotted in. Yeah, I was going to say I think that that makes a substantial difference in what the deck has available to it, and also upping the number of one CMC plays that it has. I think helps a lot, probably as it's turned out with Ruin Crab and Hedron Crab both being available now. Yeah, I mean, it's like having access to Llanowar Elves and Elvish Mystic. Yeah. Having, having a lot more is always really good. I mean, this, this, that's what you want to see. You want to ha- see an opening hand with, with one of your crabs, and you're going to get a lot more opportunity to do that with eight in the deck. Yeah, I mean, I will say the one thing to keep in mind about Mill is that if you really wanted to beat Mill, I mean, you could, if it, if it became a huge part of the metagame, people could start running, just put like an Emrakul on their sideboard, and then you know, it's pretty tough for Mill to come back from that. So it's, it's weird. It's in this weird space where like, if it gets too, too popular, it's very easy for people to hate it out for very low cost. 
You know what I mean? And so we'll have to see how it develops because it certainly feels like it's pretty popular right now. Which kind of surprises me, honestly. Like, it's like, I didn't realize people were all waiting in the wings to play Mill. Sure you did. Um, I don't know. Like, I actually think Mill has tools now to beat Emrakul. It can run cling to dust, which is awesome. Right, but you st- you still get the reshuffle one time, and so you get so far ahead because you... It's like gaining 50 life. Yeah, you, like, gain 50 <laughs> life off of one card. And if it you hit it late in the game, for sure, it's even, it's even worse, right? So it, it's one of those things where you just get... You get to negate so many of the cards that they've played for no cost other than a sideboard slot that I, it's not that hard to hate out. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's an interesting thing about mill is that it's, it's entire, it's power is entirely based on its obscurity in a lot of ways, right? Like not entirely like, but a lot of it is based on being able to like say, Hey, you're not thinking about me. So, you know, you're not running the equivalent of the stony silence. That's going to make my deck not work as well. Yeah, but I think it's hard to deny that it's gotten a lot of options to become much more consistent with its sort of medium plays right now, right? Like there's even to the point where like the lists that are being run right now, you know, one thing that I thought was super smart and annoying about the lists that were up before now is that if you ran into someone playing mill, a lot of times they were playing a couple of mission briefing to be able to recast extra archive traps. And that was just like, oh my gosh, like all of a sudden I'm they're going to cast three archive traps against me in a turn. And they've t- actually taken that out at this point from what, from the list that some of the lists that I've seen. The 10th place Doomwake list still has a one of briefing. Still has one of, yeah, the, I don't think the winning one did. So they've, they've lessened them at, at the very least in favor of these more consistent plays and extra utility out of blood chiefs whatever blood chiefs what drain thirst what's it called thirst <laughs> blood chiefs thirst yeah. he's thirsty they're thirsty who's a blood chief Ugh, so many blood chiefs on zendikar you know what we could have used with this we could have used a uh a reprint of the mythic blood chief what's it in pioneer what's he called the vampire the four cmc is, is kalidus of kalidus is it are they a blood chief yeah i believe so oh cool oh yeah that is that is from bfc isn't it mm-hmm. all right cool Stan, you think anything more about Mill, or should we move on to talk about Omnath lurking behind us for colorly? That's an ad, that's an adverb now. Let's talk Omnath. So we have mentioned Omnath a lot this episode, but here's a reminder of what Omnath is doing. Okay, so it's red, green, white, blue. Legendary elemental. When Omnath ETBs, you draw a card. Okay, that's always good, right? Just get a card. It's already a 4-4. So you get a 4-4, it draws a card. Fine. (laughs) Landfall. Whenever a land ETB is under your control, you gain four life. This is the first time this ability has resolved this turn. So yeah, just get, just, you know, play this, play a land, get four life. Fine. If it's the second time, you add red, green, blue, W, excuse me, blue, blue, white. Uh, If it's the third time, Omnath deals four damage to each opponent and four into each planeswalker you don't control. So let's just look at this. You know, you play you play a land in a control deck most of your turns, many of your turns, right? And so you might be a fetch land. It might be maybe you bounce some bounce a land back to your hand. All sorts of options. It's pretty easy to imagine. You know, last two weeks ago, I said that landfall is not a sure thing, but in that's in more of an aggressive shell. And I think in a control deck where you're playing like you know twenty eight thirty lands the odds are a lot better that you're going to be able to consistently make your land drops. And so 
thinking about Omnath and looking at the landfall triggers, you can say to yourself, this is much more realistic for me to get value out of, right? Where it's like, I'm going to gain four life multiple turns. I'm going to be able to ramp my mana perhaps uh, immediately, or perhaps, you know, the very next turn, I'm going to have access to maybe, you know, nine mana because I'll have five lands and I'll have this additional red, green, white, blue. So that's just, and then even like, let's say it's magical and you get the third time, right? Like maybe you fire off a field of ruin or something weird, right? Like, uh, then you, you, uh, you, you just dome your opponent and other planeswalkers. So there's just a lot of utility there and everything it's doing is good. So why not? I mean, it goes perfectly with in pioneer with bring to light and Niv. It's pretty hard to say this not. I mean, it's, you can't really, you can't draw it off of Niv, right? No, right. I believe because it's only it's like two color combinations, right? It's all about the guilds. So in that sense, it doesn't go perfectly with it, but it's still a deck where you have a lot of access to a lot of different colors and you're going to be able to, to use them. You can bring to light it, which is pretty, pretty good as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense there. And then when you just think about like the value engine that comes with something like Uro and, and other things like that, it, it it makes a ton of sense that this card is going to be around a good amount. You know, it's not like a four, four is that hard to deal with. It doesn't have any resiliency, but it draws you a card immediately. I mean, this, this is like, this is like a crackling Drake that requires no work to do a whole bunch of other stuff to make it great. Stan, I know you love casting stuff like on at these four color elemental decks that you just love. I mean, this is the kind of card that, it's just in the Uro vein, right? It just it just has a lot of value stapled to it. It's not too expensive. Four colors is a lot. Like four colors is quite a bit, but apparently it's not that much of an issue because people are just shoving it into all kinds of decks. Remember when you had to pay mana for Siege Rhino? Yeah. Now it's just free. Yeah. I remember, I mean, Siege Rhino, that's a long time ago now, like six years. And we've come a long way in our expectations of, of multicolored four mana cards. Everything's just drawing cards. Everything's, you know, or putting lands into play or ramping you or gaining you life to help you pull away from the decks that are ostensibly a potential problem for you. Right? Like it's like, why, why make control have these life gain cards that are also good at doing other things is kind of an area of frustration for me. It's like, so formerly you might run something like like timely, and timely is like really good, but it's not a card that you want to main deck, right? It's like a it's a it's a sideboard tech piece that shores up a potential area of weakness. Like when an aggressive deck is getting underneath you, because your threats that are going to win the game are like five mana or are a creature land that like costs five to activate or something like that, right? Like in your celestial colonnade or something like that. When you keep printing cards like this, and I don't necessarily mean to go like on a diatribe against like contemporary card design. But when you print cards like this that are good on rate and have other good things attached to them, like why also give them life gain? Because then all you're doing is like you're shifting the the what a certain style of deck can do to be able to do too much. And like if you get like one number wrong or it's like maybe the CMC is one too low or the life gain is one or two points too high and that balance is shifted in a way that just makes a Uro pile deck just too good at too many things. Or it's like, it's no longer just a control deck. It's basically just a, a big mid-range deck that also can beat aggressive strategies. 
And that's a little bit frustrating for me as a somewhat aggressive player. Hey, man, I feel your pain. I, I don't think this is like great design. I think this is just like how much text can we fit on a card to make it as good as possible and splashy and fill packs. As desirable as possible. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I kind of like that they made. So Omnath has been known as like a real EDH card previously like there's been three other versions of omnath and so i'm kind of glad that they made one that was actually constructed playable because it's sort of like the marquee character of zendikar but it's definitely like it's a lot like just having this draw card when it comes to play is (laughs) kind of mind-blowing really like all the other abilities are pretty good and then also you draw a card when it when it enters the battlefield it's like thanks there's no risk to me playing this card ever (laughs) And of course, it's super expensive. You know, it's $40 right off the bat right now. It had gotten all the way down to 10 and now it's up to 40 again. And now if you were playing Uro, you probably have to get Omnath too. And so I'm like, I just got Uro. Now do I have to get Omnath too? No, I'm just going to buy a list of my Uros. It's time. Let's get rid of these Uros. Oh, Oh, man. I thought I was going to sell you my last one. Mm, Yeah. You got any Omnaths? No. I I haven't opened Mm. a single pack of Zendikar yet. I... I likely won't. I opened a box. It was pretty fun. I got a box over the weekend. I got an ancient tomb in the in the booster on the top. Ooh, nice. So yeah, I mean, it's if it's another Uro, I think people are going to be frustrated. Where it's like, you know, we're seeing indications of that in Pioneer already, which is just like, hey, here's like, you know, a third to the to a third plus of decks are just going to play these multicolored powerhouses. Enjoy. Part of me worries and wonders whether this might end up even being stronger than Uro, just because it also produces extra mana. It makes all of your like extra lands so much more powerful. And like, this is the type of card. So Uro, the thing about Uro is like you can sometimes beat it before it like does a lot of work. Um, and you can probably do the same thing here. But I feel like this is also a card that certain decks will just scoop to immediately and have like very few answers to like there's there's relatively few one mana answers to this card in pioneer you have a few more in modern but like pioneer what do you if you're on mono red and someone casts an omnath against you like you're just done for you're not super happy so that's too bad but i'm sure we'll be complaining about this card for (laughs) weeks or months to come it's just funny to me that this is the type of card that like none of us like to play like, how did it become that none of us like to play a really sweet four CMC like, creature? We're constantly talk- at least Shane, especially, is constantly talking about like I like cards that or decks that benefit like thoughtful decision making, and like we talk about how important sequencing is or whatnot. Omnath is going to end up being one of those cards. Like, it's never wrong to play Omnath, and Uro is like s- similar in that vein. Except I think like laughably, Uro is easier to answer now than Omnath is. I mean, I think the decks that Uro and Omnath, Omnath especially, will go into are decks that require good playing and good decisions to get to the point where you can play an Omnath and not still be so far behind that you know, um, you know, you can't untap with it or something like that, right? But I, I do think that you're right, Stan, which is like the decision to put this card in your deck is on rails, and and that's that's something that's becoming less interesting to me is like when decks are building themselves or sort of being put together themselves. Cause just like, here's the good cards. Right. And like, there's a lot of nuance to like what those good cards are or what makes a card good at a certain time, of course. Right. But it's just like, Hey, here's the flagship mythic. You should be playing it. 
type thing. And there's an area of frustration there when like there's, and we talked about this in past episodes where it's like, it's never bad. There's no, there's no downside besides just the four colors in something like Omnath. And the mana is so good in these formats that it's like, it's rarely an issue of concern, especially when you put something like Lotus Cobra in the same format and Lotus Cobra is like immediately in pioneer and immediately is providing mana fixing just by playing land. So it's like, Hey, give me some ramp and some fixing for doing what I'm supposed to be doing in this shell anyway, which is playing lands. And so it's just kind of like wild to, to shove all that stuff together at once. And it's not, it's not like, it's not something that requires you to like feel, it doesn't make you feel creative, right? To be like, oh, yeah, like I, I, I did this because like it was so <laughs> obvious. To, it's so fun and so easy to do because these cards are just ripe for the picking. It's low, like low hanging fruit, right? But you could say the same thing about humans, maybe, which is like, hey, here's like, here's some pile of good humans. Well, at least with humans, like you have to decide, do I play Charming Prince? Do I play General Kudro? Yeah. Your 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 three mana slot is the area of concern primarily. <laughs> like what, what like what six what six three mana cards am I going to play or something? Maybe I need to cast that new spirit. I don't know. All right, I want to give Dave a little bit of a runway to land on uh, with some Death Shadow conversation. So I'm going to quickly uh, talk about Naya Winota and Pioneer because Winota did show up just outside the top eight in Sunday's challenge. It was in tenth and twelfth place, and Winota's pretty different looking now. Right, so the latest tech, or somewhat different looking, latest tech is Lotus Cobra. I just mentioned that being newly printed into Pioneer, and the pathways. So it's doing a number of different pathways to improve the somewhat clumsy mana base, and it has Lotus Cobra. So like Lotus Cobra on two into a land on three allows you to cast that turn three Winota. Uh, it gives you even more redundancy to the eight mana elves you're already trying to use to get some ramp. Um, one thing I don't really get is like this seasoned hollow blade card, which is both of them had a playset of it. And it doesn't seem good enough to me. And I, I'm, I feel like I'm missing something. It's a three, one for one and a white that allows you to discard a card and tap it, which gains it indestructible until end of turn. So I, I don't know what's up. I don't know. Cause, Cause if you get it off of the Winota trigger, it already has indestructible. Yes. And it's only a three, one. It's like what's what what's going on here? It is attacking for six. If you also have Marauders, I mean, but there's a lot of other things to play there. Like there's there's not a it's not a protection card. It's not like a giver of runes. I just don't know. Like maybe it's 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 beyond my ken. Well, if you have thoughts, send us an email at the dive down at gmail dot com and let us know what the heck this card is doing in this. Yeah, deck. what I'm what I'm missing. But Dave. Like I said, we we talked about some Grixis Death Shadow. We talked about Death Shadow, rather, not just Grixis Death Shadow. And give me some thoughts. Well, before we do that, do you, do you like the look of the new Naya decks, the new Winota decks? Or? I mean, I like cleaning up the Naya mana. It hmm. seems So is it running, how many is it running of the two different pathways? I believe it's running six total. It's like it's it's like three, three, and two or something. No, I mean, uh, yeah, three, three, and two. So like eight total, I believe. It's running eight total. because Oh, because red, green is available. Green, white yes. is available. Yes. And I don't know, what's the other one? Red, white. Red, white is also available. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. I think so. Okay. So yeah, just, it's really, it's, it's good, clean Naya. It's cleaner uh naya mana it's maybe worth considering that in decks and pioneer that can run i mean this might be the only one that can naya right now can run that many different pathways that lets you really fix your mana the way you want it to be 
when you have eight of them, you can be like, this one comes in as blue and this one comes in as green. And like, you can do all the stuff you need to do. So that that's pretty interesting. When you run four, it might be a little bit more kind of like you don't get the advantage quite as much, but yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's still not like my favorite style of deck to play, but I think that, you know, if you like Winota, I think it's going to be even stronger now just because of the mana. I mean, we know Stan likes Winota, so we go way back. We do. All right. I'll talk about Shadow really, really quick because I already talked about the zoo version early on. I gave you some of the, my notes that I had about the weird interaction between a uh, scourge and the uh, team or battle rage. The only thing I would say is there's definitely a boost to the deck across all forms coming from Scourge of the Skyclaves and the Hellhound and Agadim's Awakening in different configurations that I think a lot of like shadow pilots are trying out right now. You know, just having access to another threat that's efficient, that doesn't necessarily replace Gurmag Angler. You know, when I talked on the spoiler episode, I said that I thought people were going to be doing that. They're not. Like in Grixis in particular, they're running Scourge and Death Shadow and Gurmag Angler, sometimes in full play sets of each. Um, it's powerful, you know? And I think just having a little bit of extra redundancy lets you do some extra stuff with that shell that you couldn't do before. You do have to manage, like, what am I... How am I getting my opponent's life total down? And that's why the aggro versions or versions with lightning bolt, I think, have some advantage. But, you know, I saw, again, noted shadow scientist Michael Rapp over the last week playing a Sultai version, really a four-color version, like a non-traverse version that had um, it had Teamer Battle Rage in it still, and it was running Tarmogoyf and Scourge next to each other. And even initial testing of that one, he felt like was pretty good. So I think that realistically, I don't think this changes the deck. It's kind of like what I thought about the Jeskai one, where it doesn't change the deck completely, but it is a more consistent two mana threat that you can run with Goyf or without Goyf, or you can run with other aggro uh, options if you want to put it in a shell like that. It's it's pretty powerful, and that synergy with Teamer Battle Rage or or a little bit of bonus that you get with the team or battle rage hits is pretty interesting too. So I, you know, I'm probably going to be dipping my toe back into the well of some shadow playing right now, just because I think it has more threats. And that's one thing that was always a little bit of a problem with this deck was just running out of threats that fit. You think that's going to be your sleep, believe he for next week, Dave? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't think I'm going to go dip into Belcher We'll see what else happens. You know, one deck that we didn't get to talk to, didn't get to talk about tonight is, you know, someone in our Patreon, I think Mickey, shared a landfall aggro deck that was basically all landfall creatures and scape shift as a way to do some just wild, huge amounts of damage on turn four. That could be pretty interesting too. And so I would be keeping an eye on that as like a super flat out aggro version of a deck to think about as well in the, in the offing. So there's a lot going on. I think Zendikar has turned out to have a pretty, not huge, but interesting effect on modern and pioneer to an extent. I think there's a lot of cards that are popping up in different places because landfall is a pretty powerful mechanic when it's on the right cards, Shane, because they've printed a couple of good cards that help boost boost decks that we already like. And then the double face card thing has turned is really kind of a weird, fundamentally different mechanic. And so there are things that people can do to break that and they'll continue to innovate around that powerful mechanic from there. I do want to know, though, before we shut down, what are your hot takes about Zendikar rising eternal formats? All right, ignoring the initial concern about something like Omnath, I think that this does address the allied mana 
and a part of the allied mana weakness in, in Pioneer, which is something that I've been lamenting. I think it opens up people to be able to play stronger Selesnya decks, stronger Gruul decks. Um, I'm interested in when we can start seeing something like uh, Rakdos and Azorius in coming sets. I think there's a lot of opportunity for those decks. Those decks have kind of sort of been lingering in in most of the time like like hey like there's a there's a potential here for Rakdos like with Kroxa or something like that or there's a potential potential for Gruul to be the aggro deck of choice for people like the creature based aggro deck instead of having to be mono red and or something like even Naya Winota uh and I think it's it's nice to be able to open that up a little bit and say hey uh let's see what we can do with these pathways which aren't the end all be all but they're a really nice tool for for deck building. And beyond the land, I think it's cool just to be like, you know, like a, a one mana sorcery speed removal spell that has flexibility is better than I think a lot of people thought. And it's cool to like be able to say like, hey, it's like it's it doesn't need to be instant to be good. And it just makes you have to play a little bit differently or think a little bit differently. And I think there's a lot of cards like that here. Like there's a lot of stuff that makes you like consider optionality and consider cost benefit analysis and consider like floors and ceilings and make those choices. Like, Hey, maybe I can fit one or two of these spell lands that if I needed to come in as a land, I'm going to pay through life. But having the optionality to cast a seven mana spell to dig through my deck for a creature, I might need late game is going to be worth it. And I think that that's cool. You know, it's, it's, it's a difference between that and Omnath, right? Which is like, Hey, you're going to play this if you can, because it's so darn good. Here's my hot take. Double faced land cards will lead to multiple bannings in modern not sure what those are going to be right now right now recross the paths is high on my list but maybe belcher as well Uh, i think we'll see where it goes from there but i think it's a fundamentally different enough mechanic that there are cards that will have to go to keep from it breaking modern you don't think they're just going to ban all the all the double faced modal lands at once because they really need they really need to keep your cross the paths in the format. <laughs> I think you hit to the core of my argument right there. That's I think they call that Occam's razor. <laughs> What's the simpler thing to do? Stan, you got to take even though you know what what did you think about when you're on your vision quest? I kept thinking, wow, my hands are so strange and beautiful. Um so I actually had a similar take as Dave. So I will mention it briefly and then share a novel one my my first similar take is that we're not done with bands in 2020 yeah. like i think it's going to impact multiple formats and not just modern i think it'll also impact standard um but maybe that's just kind of the nature of the game these days and maybe that's going to remain sort of the nature of the game for at least another year or two until they kind of see the impact of what 2019 and 2020 did to magic and and players like feelings toward the game and maybe then they'll correct and maybe they'll even overcorrect and it'll be super underpowered for a while and i hope that happens um shane i think is shaking his head no (laughs) (laughs) just quietly shaking um my other take i i think this is going to and this is my hot take that isn't really backed by any real evidence yet but i think we're gonna see like a very profound impact from this set on multiple sets and not just in banning but like in deck architecture and it's starting to remind me a little bit of like war of the spark where we kind of saw like pre-war of the spark modern and formats and magic and post-war formats 
And I kind of wonder if we're, we might see something similar here because there's just like so much unique power spread across a lot of different cards and a lot of different colors that I think we're going to end up seeing a lot of Zendikar cards in the formats that we love across a variety of decks. And maybe that's a good thing. It kind of depends on how you look at it and how like precious you are with some of your non-rotating formats. But that's kind of my hot take of the day, that this is going to be very big and impactful for better or for worse. So thank you to Ron, who submitted that question to our Slack. And also thank you to Ron for making some lovely alters for us. And uh, we'll talk about that maybe some other time, but we made he made some custom cards for each of us, which was lovely. So we appreciate you. Yeah, those are sick. All right, that wraps up this week's show. It's good to be back, guys. I, I missed you. I'm never going to leave again. You promise? At least until my next vacation. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in Modern or Pioneer, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon, where joining at any tier gets you access to our super secret Slack channel, playing our bi-weekly FNMs, chat with us, other patrons. Lately, we've been talking about Among Us a lot, I guess. That's the hot new game. Yeah, we are planning to play Among Us the night before this episode comes out, so here's hoping that comes to fruition. Oh man, I should download that game. Uh, although I guess I wasn't invited, so maybe... Stan, you're invited. Yes! Also, shout out to Mana Traders for sponsoring the Dive Down. You can sign up for Mana Traders using code the Dive Down, all one word, and get 20% off your first three months of renting Magic Online cards. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and play fewer lands!